play on the um, division fund. It's an extremely volatile story. It's incredibly hard to play in a uh, in a portfolio because it'll cause you massive underperformance and then then come surging back. And then the, the volatility is, is very hard. So it's, it's tough to deal with at the moment. So uh, one um, hopes that they'll, uh, they'll start to recover from that. But I think uh, most people are saying, let's leave it out of my portfolio for the time being. Nick, thanks very much indeed. That's Nick Smith, Japan strategist at CLSA in Tokyo. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. A quick message from the transport department. Due to a traffic accident, parts of the lanes of Lungchung Road near Beacon Heights is closed to all traffic. Only uh, remaining lane, one remaining lane available to motorists. Let me give you an update uh, on the markets as well. Uh, in Australia, the ASX 200 is up 0.4%. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 also up 0.4%. In South Korea, stocks there are flat. Uh, looks like the Hang Seng uh, is going to add about 320 points or so at the open in just under an hour's time. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil at $73.58 a barrel and gold is trading at $1,781 an ounce. Now, please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock for Money Talk. Stay tuned to Back Chat with Jim Gould and Ada Wong. That's coming up in just one moment. The weather forecast, fine, cool in the morning, dry during the day. Maximum temperature around 22 degrees. Going to remain fine and dry uh, this week. Temperature right now is 19 degrees, 62% relative humidity. It's 8.32. Here's Andrew Shorsky with the half-hour news. An expert on Chinese affairs, Willie Lam, has described yesterday's comments by a senior Beijing official as unprecedented. The director of Beijing's Hong Kong and Macau Affairs Office, Xiao Baolong, had called on Hong Kong people to cast their sacred ballots in the Legislative Council polls on December 19th. Mr. Lam, a professor at the Chinese University, said it is rare that such a senior official would make this kind of an appeal to Hong Kong voters. I think those comments were very important because it is quite unprecedented for such a senior uh, level state leader to make an appeal to Hong Kong voters just uh, a couple of weeks before the actual election because he said explicitly that um, the act of voting uh, is a means of um, showing your confidence in one country, two systems. New York City's Mayor Bill de Blasio has issued a vaccine mandate for private sector workers. It will come into effect on the 27th of December. He called it a preemptive strike designed to stem rising cases of COVID-19 as the Omicron variant gains a foothold. City employees are already required to be jabbed and some firms have imposed their own mandates on staff. Here's Mr. de Blasio. Vaccination is the central weapon in this war against COVID. It's the one thing that has worked every single time across the board on a strategic level. It's the reason New York City is back in so many ways. And it's the reason we can avoid uh, shutdowns and restrictions. It's more use of vaccination. So that's why we are taking aggressive action today. Myanmar's military rulers are facing international condemnation after the deposed civilian leader Aung San Suu Kyi was given a four-year prison sentence, later reduced to two. The United States said her conviction was an affront to democracy and justice. A spokeswoman for the UN Human Rights Chief Michelle Bachelet, Ravina Shamdasani, called the trial a sham. 
The UN High Commissioner for Human Rights deeply deplores the conviction and sentencing of Aung San Suu Kyi. However, it's quite impressive that uh, tonight um, in Myanmar, you are still seeing the banging of pots and pans by people in the country in opposition to the military. This kind of a sentence for Aung San Suu Kyi and the continued detention of political opponents, we believe it will only embolden the resistance against the illegitimate rule of the military. Myanmar's former president, Win Myint, was also sentenced to four years. Ms. Suu Kyi faces further charges, which could see her jailed for life. Members of the Green Party in Germany have overwhelmingly backed the formation of a coalition with the Social Democrats and the Free Democrats. It clears the way for a vote tomorrow to approve the Social Democrat Olaf Scholz as chancellor. He'll replace Angela Merkel after her 16 years in power. That's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host today is Ada Wong. Good morning, Ada. Good morning, Jim. On today's programme, we're returning to efforts locally and internationally to boost vaccination rates against COVID-19. A new survey by the Society of Hospital Pharmacists suggests that nearly half of unvaccinated Hong Kongers say they won't be getting inoculated anytime soon against the coronavirus. Of the more than 5,600 respondents to the online survey, 47% of those who'd not been vaccinated said they wouldn't be getting the jabs, while 27% were undecided. The results have come after Hong Kong reached one target late last month of having 70% of the eligible population receive at least one COVID-19 shot. And meanwhile, another airline, Swiss International Airlines, has suspended flights to Hong Kong uh, over quarantine restrictions for aircrew. From uh, 9.15, we'll be talking about uh, transitional housing. Is this a way to relieve housing problems? Uh, let us know your thoughts. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233 we're joined now on the line by Dr. Pan Pei Chu, uh, Chairman of the Hong Kong Medical and Healthcare Staff General Union and a former Vice Chairman of the Hong Kong Federation of Trade Unions and uh, also Professor Roberto Bruzzoni, Co-Director of the Hong Kong U Pasteur Research Poll at the School of Public Health at the University of Hong Kong. Uh, good morning to you both. Um, uh, Dr. Pan, uh, uh, if I could ask you first, uh, hello, good morning to you. So, uh, so this survey uh, by the Society of Hospital Pharmacists, um, it suggests that quite a lot of people are still not willing to get uh, COVID-19 vaccinations. Uh, that must be a cause for concern. Yes, I think that uh, this, well, in this way, we are sort of in line with other developed uh, countries uh, and areas. Uh, that a lot of people are reluctant to to have the the vaccination, especially I think in view of the fact that uh, the local uh, uh, say uh, uh, pandemic situation is sort of uh, has lagged a bit, right? So with uh, uh, with the fact that uh, we we haven't got uh, any local cases for quite a long time, so people. I mean, may get more complacent under such circumstances. And how do we deal with that complacency? I think that um, we, we have to, um, the government will have to uh, try to uh, advocate more. I, I don't really believe in, say, 
uh, sort of coercing people into getting vaccinated. Like, for example, if you don't have the jab, then you can't, say, go to certain places or, or, or say, to do certain things or to get a job. Rather, I think it's, uh, we have to convince people that it's actually to their own advantage and also to the welfare of the, of the community at large that uh, they should get vaccinated. Mm. Um, Dr. Pan, I, I know some people older, you know, like 70s, 80s, they, they're not really getting vaccinated because they have these... Yes. Um, long-term illnesses such as diabetes and they really believe that there will be a lot of side effects and how how, yes. how do we overcome this yes uh ada i totally agree with you um i think that uh, in my work i come across a lot of uh, older uh patients or people who come to see me and uh, very often they ask me or despite the fact that i'm a psychiatrist they they do ask me whether uh, they should get the the the, the jab um I think that this is because of the wide publicity of some of the uh, cases of people who, who died shortly after having uh, vaccinated. Um, so this is something, this is actually a myth. So I think the government can actually try harder right, to uh, sort of uh, uh, attack this myth right, by producing more statistics. I think the government has done this, but this was not, this message was not widely received. So I think the, say in terms of, uh, uh, advocating for, for the vaccine, uh, what I suggest the government can do a few things. The first is to use figures and continuously, right, to show that people who received, uh, the vaccination, uh, are safe, right, uh, as compared to people who haven't received the vaccination, right, in terms of having uh, sudden deaths and other uh, acute illnesses. Uh, these figures are, are readily available. So this is one thing. The second thing is to uh, actually uh, to have more people, older people who have received uh, the vaccination to come out and say that they have received the vaccination and what their experience was like. So, uh, yeah. But the vaccination program has been going on now for the best part of this year. Yes. And um, we've still only reached about 70% uh, of, of the eligible right. population. Um, uh, isn't it the case that uh, being vaccinated can be seen as a, a civic duty? I mean, it's not just for protection for yourself and your family, but for the society as a whole. So you say yes. you don't think there should be a coercion, but uh, shouldn't uh, there be perhaps a, a more uh, f forceful persuasion, if we can put it that way? <laughs> yes, that's, that's, that's correct. I think mm. coercion. The line between coercion and uh, and uh, sort of uh, forceful uh, uh, sort of uh, persuasion is uh, is very thin, right? But what I'm saying is that uh, it's better to to persuade people, right, to to convince people that it's uh, good for themselves. And uh, given that human nature is generally, well, let's put it this way, uh, uh, selfish, right? Uh, this may not be a very good word, but that's the actual fact. I think most people will take their welfare first, right? So I think we have to tell people that this is actually uh, to their advantage. So the first thing is now uh, it's safe to have it, right? The second thing is it's unsafe if they uh, if they caught uh, COVID-19, right? Because there's a lot of evidence uh, showing that Older people uh, have more severe illness and 
died have a higher death rate from the COVID-19, right? So I think the government should really, in their promotion, to emphasize on this fact, right? These figures are also readily available. So the government should be doing that. Uh, they have to let people know the danger of not having the vaccination should, say, Hong Kong open more to the outside world. And secondly, to tell them that uh, to have the vaccination is very safe, right? These figures are also readily available and should be repeated and repeated and repeated, right? Okay. Uh, also with us is uh, Professor Roberto uh, Bruzzoni. Uh, good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning, Thank- Jim. Thanks for joining us. Um, it seems a, a lot of the people who haven't been vaccinated yet uh, say they are waiting for a new generation of vaccines which may be uh, effective against uh, new variants such as the Omicron variant that we have now. Um, <laughs> what would you say to them? I mean, it's presumably it's going to take uh, quite a long time before such uh, vaccines well, can be developed. I've seen, I've seen I, various I, I, estimations from 100 days to a year. Well, I don't know how long it will take. Uh, maybe by the time these vaccines are out, there will be another variant. As we're going to go through the entire Greek alphabet, that's going to be good for those like me who had classical studies to uh, get a reminder of, uh, of, of the Greek alphabet and all its letters. Alphabet uh, yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, eta. <laughs> Epsilon, eta, theta. Yeah. But, uh, but the point is that, uh, you know, there is a a contrast between a message that says we need to get vaccinated and the other message that says i'm reading this morning on one newspaper of uh, hong kong living with covid 19 not an option for china government advisor says then if, if this is not an option that means that hong kong will remain closed to the rest of the world with people having to quarantine for three weeks before enter hong kong then why do you have to be vaccinated so, 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 uh, so unless I am vaccinated, I don't give my third dose. Okay, so let, let, let me be clear on that. <laughs> so, Professor Brassoni, uh, if uh, if this uh, zero COVID strategy is still with us, I think that is also a deterrent for people who have it not yet been vaccinated. There is no advantage, even in everyday life going to school or to restaurants or this place or the other. There is no social pressure for this behavior. This is not forceful uh, coercion or, I don't know, forceful persuasion. It is the fact that if, if there is no incentive from the public health point of view, then people may say, I really don't need it. You know, there have been uh, no evidence of community transmission of this virus since the month of May in Hong Kong. On going to to restaurants, it has been suggested that uh, probably from next year onwards there might be something like a vaccine passport. And uh, for the elderly who would love to go to dim sum every day, um, they might not be able to do so if they are not jabbed. How, How do you think of that? Well, I, I know there is always, you know, a case that you can um, have empathy and uh, for uh, people's uh, lifestyle, etc. But again, that has to do with an objective. You know, we were told there's going to be a vaccine, then we're going to do this. Then this didn't happen. Then we say we need to have 70% vaccinated and nothing happened. Now some people say that we need to be 99% vaccinated, which will never happen. 
most likely. And when 99% of Hong Kong people are vaccinated, there will be probably 50% of those people who will have been vaccinated at least one year before. And we know that uh, there is uh, antibody waning, that in particular the Sinovac vaccine has, you know, greater rate of antibody waning, etc. So some people will say, well, are those vaccinated people from a year ago still protected or not? We don't know. So, you know, you're, you're, you're really kicking the can down the road and there is no clear discourse and, 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 and society approach on what to do. And since, as I said, China has clearly indicated that living with COVID is not an option, then, of course, living with COVID is not an option in Hong Kong, and therefore, this is what is happening. Um, more and more places now, though, are requiring that you show your vaccination records before you can enter the premises. Uh, is that a trend, do you think, that should be I'm encouraged? I'm fine with that. In many yeah. countries in Europe, you have to do that. You know, yeah. France and Italy and Germany, they have started already doing this. Italy, you know, already a couple of months ago, I think. You cannot go, you, you know, in, in France, you cannot even board the train, let yeah. alone a flight. Yes, yes. Uh, Dr. Pan, is, would, yes. you, would you support that, uh, the, make, making it mandatory to show your vaccination record before you can, uh, for instance, uh, go into a restaurant or, or use public transport even? Uh, well, let's put it this way. I am not against, uh, say, giving people, say, who have vaccinated uh, more privilege. Uh, uh, what I'm saying is that uh, we should try to persuade people to, to have vaccines first, right? So I think that uh, we probably have to, to adopt some of those measures, right? Like, uh, for example, uh, going to, to a restaurant uh, or to stay for up to a particular time of the day, uh, things like that. I think that uh, I, I know that government will be uh, giving exemptions, right, to certain categories of people who... Uh, say who, uh, for using the the the, uh, the 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 app, right? Uh, safe, whatever, right? Uh, I think that um, it, it may be possible. For example, uh, people who uh, may, for example, uh, be given the the say older people will be given uh, the exemption, allowed exemption. But I think there should be a condition that, provided they can produce evidence that they have received uh, the vaccination. So that would be fairer, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, um, so, yeah. On the other hand, uh, you know, any person is just a figure uh, of one uh, in, this, in the statistician's uh, eyes. Uh, but um, say, for example, if, uh, if someone is above 80 years old and he or she uh, stays at home uh, for most of the time and, you know, they don't really go out and... Um, and um, they, they are quite happy not to be vaccinated. And, and I guess... Um, um, they should not be forced, as you say. But still, you know, it is a figure. It is a figure that, you know, X percent of people who are unvaccinated. Yes. But they don't yes. go out to the community. Yes, I think this is a uh, misunderstanding because, I mean, these older people may, may, may be living on their own, but they still have to visit their families, right? Uh, their family, their children, their grandchildren. Uh, they, they are going to, to, to go out and... and uh, meet other people, especially young children. I think when schools are all fully opened and uh, uh, return to normal studying, then there's a high chance of uh, kids uh, spreading uh, the virus right uh, among themselves. And kids may not have uh, serious 
uh, uh, infection from it, but they can certainly spread the virus to all, to, to older people in the family. So let them know that if they want to have uh, more time with uh, to have contact with their family, young, uh, from younger family members, that it, it, they really need to have the vaccination. Okay. I think, uh, sorry if I may just yes, say, you know, it's very difficult now to, to go through persuasion. As you said, you know, there's been one year, eight billion doses have been distributed over the world. So we would know if the vaccine is unsafe. And this has been said many, many different times. The point is that whether we can live or not with COVID. So for me, if people over 80 don't want to get vaccinated because they go out only once a week for this sum, it is fine, as long as we can accept that that means that some people may get infected and therefore there be also, you know, uh, casualties, you know, because the, the virus is not uh, the bubonic plague, but still causes uh, some people to die. Like, uh, you know, it's more severe than influenza for sure. So we need to accept that. If we accept that, then it's okay. If we cannot accept that, then the only way is to get repeatedly vaccinated because we will also find out that without a community circulation of the virus, it is not yet clear whether simple vaccination will prevent any type of infection and circulation in the future. Yes, uh, Professor Bertone, what about parents uh, with young children? Nowadays, uh uh, primary school students can also be vaccinated, but uh, you know I also know of parents who are actually very nervous about sending their younger kids uh, to the vaccination centers. Well, I would not be nervous at all. Uh, our children get vaccinated when they are just uh, newborn, okay? And there is a program of vaccination uh, until the first uh, 18 months uh, with uh, several vaccines. You know, from pneumococcus, hepatitis, uh, uh, measles, mumps, rubella, etc. So I don't see why uh, this would be any different. Uh, the, uh, in fact, you know, the only the only problem that I would see again is that there is no clear benefit at the moment because to put on the shoulders of children the benefit for society that they need to be vaccinated in order for Hong Kong to reopen. That would not be justified. It's adults who need to be vaccinated. And then perhaps we can talk about children. But I would have no hesitation in, uh, in vaccinating my daughter when this will be available, when a vaccine that I believe will be more protective will be available. I believe that at the moment only the Sinovac vaccine is available for primary school children. Right, but the vaccination rate now hinges on uh, whether school can be a full-day school. So I know that, you know, Probably no primary school yet, uh, you know, can open uh, on a full day basis because of the vaccination rate. So is is that a concern? Just going to half day school? Well, I don't see why, again, I don't see why we should do that uh, on children and not on adults who are, you know, uh, able to make their own decisions because we make decisions for our children. So to say that we cannot open the schools because the children are not vaccinated, but everybody unvaccinated can go everywhere they want in Hong Kong and they have no restrictions, so that the only restriction is applied on children. I think this is unjustified. Yeah. Okay, a, a few emails here from listeners. Uh, John writes, uh, while the unvaccinated uh, wait for 
wait five. Sorry. I'll read this again. <laughs> says it, it's actually on our Facebook page. It's not an email. John writes, uh, while the unvaccinated wait, five or more variants might emerge and the next variant might be deadly. It is not logical or sensible to wait. Uh, Marcus says, uh, Hong Kong does not have any COVID cases. Why get vaccinated? Maybe if the borders were open, there would be a need. Yes. Um, has, he, has he got a point there? Are we doing things the wrong way around? Uh, open the borders and then people will go and get vaccinated. I think that this has been done, not, said not just by me here on Black Chat, but even by other experts, you know, in the newspapers. If you, if you give a roadmap and say, this is what we're going to do, A, B, C, D, then you know that D means that there is a reopening of the borders. And then everybody has the possibility, because we have procured enough doses to get this vaccine. If they choose not to do so, well, they choose not to do so. Mm. And actions have consequences for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. What, what do you think, Dr. Pan? I mean, obviously, Hong Kong is following the, the lead uh, of the mainland in pursuing the zero COVID policy. So uh, opening the borders could be problematic, obviously. But, but if it was done, do you think it, that would serve as an incentive for oh, people think, to... Uh, to yes, get the I, I think, yes, I, yes, I agree that uh, eventually Hong Kong will have to open up the border. The same with the mainland, right? That they have to open to the outside world eventually. I think um, uh, the mainland, of course, now uh, there is, a, is a, a adopting a zero tolerance, right, to COVID-19. But I think the Professor Zhong, uh, Zhong Nansan also made it clear that uh, they are watching the mortality rate, right? So when the uh, mortality rate falls, right, to a level which is comparable to influenza, they think it would be safe, right, to to uh, to to open up the country. So right now, the mortality rate worldwide is still too high, right, for say for uh, China to, to do that to open up. So I think we we have to uh, accept that and. Um, and Hong Kong for Hong Kong because we have so much uh, connections right with the mainland. So, as a first step to open up to the mainland is uh, is important, right? So, uh, but I think the people of Hong Kong should realize that eventually, right, we have to open to the outside world to to because Hong Kong can't survive, right? Just sort of uh, just opening to to the mainland, right? It, it's a, it's a in between step, right? Hong Kong is a metropolitan city, is a and belongs to the world, so so we we have eventually to to open up. And same same for mainland China. So 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 I guess, Doctor Pan, if uh, if there's a clear announcement uh, from the government that, for example, yes. you know, after Chinese New Year next year, uh, things will be more open. I think that there might be more incentive for those who are unvaccinated to go to go get their jabs. Um, I don't know whether the government can actually <laughs> say a time to do that. Uh, right now, because as you can see, uh, a lot of countries have adopted the policy of, say, living with the COVID-19 virus, right? But then uh, came the Omicron, and uh, they have to close up. And uh, so uh, in, in, it's, it's all in a mess. So I think right now uh, the government still cannot uh, pinpoint a time to do so. But I think the government should say so, that uh, eventually we have to open up, right? So when we open up, the best protection for for people here is to have uh, vaccination, right? Maybe to have uh, a booster or say yearly vaccination eventually, but we have to be protected. Right? 
Okay. Uh, uh, another email from uh, Alonzo, this one, uh, says, you really don't need to be a rocket scientist to boost Hong Kong's vaccination rate. Carrot and stick offer cash handout or consumption vouchers to every unvaxxed person who gets jabbed before a certain date. After that date, unvaxxed Hong Kongers should be fined for every month they remain unvaccinated, should have to pay for their own COVID tests, should be barred from entering restaurants, malls, etc. And uh, Mark says, uh, Hong Kong citizens receive cash handouts from the government for doing nothing and the majority are not paying any tax, the government should propose a cash handout to the vaccinated every year. Um, how about that, Dr Pan, a, a financial incentive to get vaccinated? Well, this is actually a very good idea. I think the government should uh, think about it, right? So, mm. yes, mm. I think that, that that would be a good uh, incentive. Mm. 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 Uh, uh, Pro Professor Brutoni? Well, you know that in Singapore... Uh, people who are not vaccinated, if they get COVID, they have to pay their own uh, medical expenses. Yes, that's uh, right. For example, yeah. I mean, I don't know whether this is, I think this is this is another possibility, of course, but here there are very few cases. I'm not sure, you know, if, if everything comes down to money, uh, then so be it. But if all this hesitation can be uh, easily massaged with uh, just a few thousand Hong Kong dollars, then I think it's... Uh, uh, yeah, it's a joke. Then it would be a joke. <laughs> OK, OK. We, we, we've got to pause now because uh, we're coming up to the news summary at nine o'clock. Uh, we have to say uh, goodbye and thank you to Dr. Pan Pei Chow, chairman of the Hong Kong Medical and Healthcare Staff General Union and former chairman of the Hong Kong Federation of Trade Unions. Uh, uh, Professor Brutzoni, uh, uh, please stay with us uh, for a while. Um, uh, we'll have uh, um, other guests joining us after nine o'clock. And if you want to get in touch then our uh, back chat uh, sorry our facebook page is backchat on rthk radio 3 email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 2338266 a quick look at the weather uh, fine top temperature day around uh, 23 degrees the outlook at remaining fine and dry in the next couple of days currently 19 degrees humidity 58% <laughs> Welcome back to Back Chats with uh, Ada Wong and me, Jim Gould. Uh, and this morning, we're talking about uh, COVID-19 vaccination rates uh, and efforts to boost the uh, vaccination rate. Uh, we have uh, with us Professor Roberto Brutzoni, is a co-director of the Hong Kong U uh, Pasteur Research Poll at the School of Public Health at the University of Hong Kong. Um, and also, we're joined uh, on the line by uh, Akim Cherney, Associate Professor at the Department of Logistics and Maritime Studies at Hong Kong Polytechnic University, because we also want to talk for a little while about the effect of the uh, quarantine restrictions on uh, airline uh, operations. Um, uh, Akim Cherney, good morning to you. Good morning. Yeah, thanks for joining us again. Uh, so the latest airline... Uh, that being uh, Swiss, uh, Swiss Air, um, Swiss right. International Airlines. So, so it has suspended flights to Hong Kong until Saturday over quarantine restrictions. Um, yeah. Cathay Pacific, as we know, has also uh, cut the number of its uh, inbound flights into Hong Kong under its uh, closed-loop management system. Um, uh, how difficult uh, are the quarantine restrictions for aircrew making it for airlines to operate? Um, I, first of all, I, what I would like to say is that the, the, the reduction of flights is 
I, I don't think it will only be because of the air crew. Uh, uh, the complications because of the air crew quarantine requirements. Uh, I think there are two effects here. There's a supply effect and a demand effect. Of course, it is that these, with these tightened quarantine rules, it is more difficult to have, you know, all the pilots available so that you can do the flights that you want to do. But on the other hand, do you want to do the flights? And uh, what we see is that not only the uh, rules, the quarantine rules for the air crews have been tightened, but also the um, passengers are affected by this appearance of the new Omicron virus. For instance, I was used to fly from between Hong Kong and Germany via Zurich many times. And I guess this is true for many other German travelers as well. Uh, now with the Omicron variant, uh, the travelers from even a fully vaccinated travelers from Germany have to undergo two weeks of hotel quarantine instead of three, uh, you know, three weeks of hotel quarantine instead of two weeks of hotel quarantine. So this makes it uh, less attractive, of course, flying uh, to Hong Kong, and this reduces the demand. Undoubtedly, this reduces the demand. And then the question is, okay, so you have the lower demand, you have the tightened uh, quarantine rules for the air crew. Is it really worthwhile having those flights, or should we just uh, stop flying and uh, save the money for the, for the operations, basically? And I think this sort of explains why we see what we see. Mm. Yeah, clearly if the demand's not there, the airlines are not going to operate the flights. Uh, but they are, uh, they are citing the quarantine restrictions for causing them difficulties in, uh, uh, because, I mean, it's, it's a big logistical issue, isn't it? Um, moving air crew around the world and making sure that they have enough crew in the right places to operate uh, uh, the, the number of flights that they need to do according to their well, schedules. I mean... Uh, yeah, uh, of course. Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, this is this is undoubtedly true. Uh, I mean, the quarantine rules for pilots that are not based in Hong Kong are not as tight as those that are based in Hong Kong. So, if airline, if the pilots do not mix up with the local population, then they basically stay isolated in a hotel until their next duty flight. So, I think for pilots, and I, I guess that most of the pilots uh, that are um, the, the Swiss, Swiss pilots uh, are not based in, in Hong Kong. So, um, yes, it is difficult. Is it the main reason? I, I, of course, I, I, I don't know, but I suspect that there is a demand side effect as well, which has uh, led to this situation and the decision perhaps to reduce flights between uh, Zurich and, and Hong Kong. Yes, uh, Professor Cherney, uh, obviously uh, in Hong Kong uh, there is uh, very little demand. I do know people who have actually cancelled their, their flights uh, to the US or to Canada to visit their children there uh, because of Omicron. Now, um, but I also understand that um, uh, in, in the West, and particularly in the West, uh, people are flying and... Um, do, do you see uh, do you see any um, increase of um, uh, different cases uh, uh, of uh, uh, um, you know the the coronavirus cases because of the uh, uh, intensity in flying? Uh, for for example, I heard a figure that about seventy eighty percent of the flights in the U.S. are um, you know they have been up to uh, like pre pandemic level already. Is right. that is that correct or not? Yeah, I mean. Uh, yeah, uh, the, that's true. So the domestic markets have recovered quite well. 
so uh, in uh, that's also true in in Europe. Um, but um, the you know that's a, there, as we all know. I mean, there is a, it's, it's just a different uh, way of handling with the virus. So do you accept you know having people infected with the virus or or not? And uh, so I think this is basically explaining differences in handling the the, the situation. Mm. Uh, th- there are a lot of uh, stories about. Um, aircrew uh, relocating from this part of the world uh, to other parts of the world uh, to airlines uh, in in the West, which, which are hiring at the moment. Um, do you think we might reach a situation whereby there's a shortage of uh, of aircrew uh, over here? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, you know, I, in the short in the shorter term, uh, sort of, it, it makes sense, right, to have to because of the differences in the quarantine rules for pilots that are or air crew that is based in Hong Kong or not. So relocating pilots is, I feel, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not an airline manager, but I, you know, it seems to me that this really could make it easier to make better use or effective use of the, of the given pilots if they are located outside Hong Kong and therefore it can be avoided that they mix with the local, local pop, uh, population. Mm. Now, how about the long-term effect? Uh, I do believe that, um, you know, the, it, it, Asia is just the main market. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it isn't, Hong Kong is now, of course, in a difficult situation, but once the pandemic is over, the third one way will be open, we are getting sort of back to normal, then Asia is the center of the world for the global aviation. And then uh, definitely airlines will, you know, this is just, it's just attractive and they will, be here and they will solve the, the pilot issues, the pilots will come. I have, you know, I have little doubt about that. The difficult situations right now. But, but with a zero COVID strategy, um, how many years do you think that uh, the aviation industry in, in China, you know, including Hong Kong, you know, can, can go back to pre-pandemic levels? Uh, I, this really, I, I think it's such a difficult question. If you would tell me now, I think we have almost the second anniversary of the pandemic. Yes, we're we're just about there, yeah. Mm. So, did you think, like, that this will be, uh, that we will have this situation for two years? Never. I would never have thought so. So, am I willing to make some, you know, predictions about what will be happening in half a year or maybe one year or maybe two years? I I just, I think it's, it's very difficult to tell. Okay. Uh, A few more emails from listeners about uh, the COVID uh, vaccination rate. Uh, So this one from Sam says, uh, I agree with the guest uh, saying that the government should take some steps forward to persuade the public to take a jab uh, other than quoting the vaccination rate. How about citing the hospitalisation or even death rate? Uh, If these figures are not available or convincing, how can the public be moved to get a jab? Um, Simon says, uh, I'll vaccinate my five-year-old when the over-80s get done. Um, And one here from Peter 
says uh, an entire generation of school children is being deprived of a normal education due to the local restrictions in place for COVID-19. This education includes sports and other cultural activities, including opportunities for international exchanges around the region. Until the older generation protects themselves, we'll never reopen the borders. The reluctance of this group to become vaccinated is depriving their grandchildren of an important part of their upbringing. Has anyone taken the time to point this out to these senior citizens? Um, well, Ada, can I ask you? You're involved in education, of course. What do you think of that uh, that point being made that uh, that the the older people's reluctance to get vaccinated is uh, depriving the younger generation of uh, you know elements of their education? Well, it's not the only it's not the only reason, right, Jim? Mm. I I do believe that the the whole government policy on uh, zero COVID is is probably the main cause. And um, yes, I, I do understand that uh, you know uh, young people these days they cannot go for cultural exchange. A lot of people would like to go to the mainland to visit different mainland cities. Uh, sports is um, actually, uh, yeah. The, I, I think the, the the biggest effect is on sports. A, a lot of um, uh, a lot of schools because of half day school they have stopped PE lessons. And so children have been sitting there you know, for half a day and then they go home and do more homework. But uh, on the other hand, I have seen better schools, you know, uh, having um, PE lessons as well as, um, you know, doing online courses in the afternoon. So it really depends on the school. And it's not um, it's not like a very broad brush or, you know, you, you can't really generalize uh, the situation. Mm. OK, OK, thanks. Thanks. Um, Professor Roberto Bruzzoni. Uh, uh, hi, are you still with us? Um, uh, yeah, I wanted to ask you about um, what we know about now, about the Omicron variant. Uh, we we're, we're, seem to be learning more about it every day. Um, it seems, from what a number of people have been saying, that it may, it may uh, be, uh, cause a fairly relatively mild infection. But, of course, um, it's early days. What's your understanding? early to say, really at uh, the beginning of this, we have some uh, relatively uh, detailed information from the South African doctors who have been seeing uh, these patients, who have been checking that the rate of admissions to the ICUs, to the you know, intensive care units has not changed, that most people who are there are for other reasons, that in many cases the uh, coronavirus uh, diagnosis is a byproduct of their being admitted for other reasons because any person admitted to a hospital is automatically tested for coronavirus. So, but uh, I think we need to wait probably two, three more weeks because uh, there is always a delay uh, we have seen in, uh, in uh, worsening conditions for people who are more uh, severely affected by the uh, coronavirus. And therefore, it is a little bit too early now to, uh, to, to decide uh, whether this is going to be uh, milder. Uh, I think that uh, um, we, we need to wait. Uh, what, it, what it is uh, interesting in a way that, uh, uh, unfortunately, the real experiment is happening in real time, in real life. It's not what we're going to find out in the lab that perhaps the antibodies to the other vaccines are less protective or this and that, that are going to matter. What matters is what we can see here from epidemiology, from clinical data, and I think that uh, we will soon uh, have the answer. I just would like to 
reminder also in terms of, uh, you know, um, danger pathogenicity and case fatality rate that in the UK, since they banned all types of restrictions, there have been more than 5 million cases and 18,000 deaths, which is about 0.3%. Mm. Uh, the UK, of course, uh, has a, a fairly good vaccination coverage. Um, how much of slightly, a f- slightly more than here. They, yes. they are probably yes. close to 80%, but, yes. uh, but uh, nowhere near 90 mm. on, on the death rate, Professor Bersoni, the figure you quoted, 0.3%, that is actually um, much lower than, um, let's say, in the early 2020s when... Um, yeah. Uh, when you know the, the virus emerged from uh, China, how 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 much lower is it now? It, it, I remember it used to be like two percent, or am I wrong? No, you're not. You're not wrong. This is the so-called confirmed cases and the so-called confirmed fatalities due to or to patients who succumbed with the coronavirus. And of course, we may have underestimated the number of cases. And, of course, also underestimated the number of deaths uh, because not everybody has been, you know, uh, diagnosed uh, properly. Not all the tests have been made, etc. Clearly, it is obvious that uh, in, uh, in places where, for example, this was tested, again, the UK, they conducted a study, I think, of blood donors in, uh, or volunteers in July, June, July 2020, at a time where there were about 400,000 cases officially diagnosed, and they found a percentage of positive antibodies of people who had clearly seen the virus and reacted, there was over 6%, which was comparable, I think, to about almost 4 million people. So there were almost 10 times as many cases than there were that were detected. This cannot be the case now, because there are no 100 million people living in the UK, mm. and we have become much better at, at, uh, at uh, testing, and, uh, and, you know, there is now throughout the territory, uh, laboratories everywhere, at least in, in Europe, in, West, in the EU, uh, the US, here in Hong Kong and Singapore. But clearly, uh, the official rate of 2%, according to many other models that were made, you know, in 2020, it's obviously an overestimation. But now we can see uh, the results of a good vaccination campaign. Okay, well, thank you very much uh, for joining us uh, on the line this morning. Uh, That was Professor Roberto Bruzzoni, co-director of the HKU Pasteur Research Poll at the School of Public Health at the University of Hong Kong. Uh, Thank you very much to Akim Cherney, Associate Professor at the Department of Logistics and Maritime Studies at uh, Hong Kong Polytechnic uh, University. And uh, for the last uh, 10 minutes or so of this morning's programme, we're going to be uh, turning our attention to another issue and that is the question of uh, transitional housing which is becoming uh, an increasingly uh, important part of uh, of housing plans uh, and the whole uh, program to try to ensure that the population uh, uh, generally speaking, on the whole, uh, enjoys uh, better living conditions. Um, we're joined on the line now by Dr. Rita Lee, Director of Sustainable Real Estate Research uh, Centre and Associate Professor of the uh, Department of Economics and Finance at Hong Kong Xu Yan University. Uh, Dr. Lee, good morning to you. 
Good morning. So uh, we've seen a number of developments uh, recently with uh, with uh, transitional housing, um, uh, hotel hotel rooms being used, uh, uh, for instance. Um, um, what do you make of this trend, and and how important uh, is it in terms of solving Hong Kong's uh, housing problems? Well, actually, in terms of Hong Kong housing problem, we know that there are a long-term problem about like subdivided housing, and then there are a lot of the uh, individuals uh, who need to have the uh, housing for the uh, 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 so that in in that case, okay, in that case that we if we have got the transition housing, it can actually solve the housing shortage problem in the short term. And then transitional housing can also be offered in the existing premises. Like, for example, uh, the government uh, property agency can provide uh, a list of the service government properties managed by different uh, departments. So under this established mechanism, NGO may apply for the service government properties for various uses. Yet these NGOs originally may not have the building skills and techniques so uh, this means that uh, this uh, automatically increases the housing supply that is managed by those that who are not developed in itself. And moreover, in case of Hong Kong uh, land structure, uh, there are a lot of the land for which that uh, uh, that they can only allow the shallow foundation, but not the deep foundation. And then, uh, in case of like, for example, modular construction that can be used for transitional housing, which is a kind of like low, uh, a kind of like low density development type of the housing, this can allow those housing to be built on the land, which cannot support the deep foundation due to the land condition. So um, that it actually solves the problem in a quicker way. Yeah, yes, Dr. Lee. Uh, I think in recent years, we have seen very interesting housing models. Uh, for me, you know, I have seen how, uh, Light B and light homes, uh, you know, have emerged. They, um, you know, what what they do is actually more than providing people with a space, but it comes with um, maybe training or childcare or even capacity building programs, so that these uh, poor families can find uh, jobs and can also learn how to do financial planning, and yeah. they get you know exactly. out of their housing problems. Now, but but that is um, that is actually a lot of work for very few families um how 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 would you see the um the impact of, of such uh uh i mean such initiatives like uh like be or like homes well actually uh if we look at the case like for example in toronto they also have got some similar type of the transitional housing where it is what you say like for example they not just provide the housing but they also provide some kind of like activities and just like uh, that, they offer some of the places for those uh, youth in particular, where they, for example, they have got a broken family, where like in Hong Kong, we have got one out of the three, it's like a family that they have got a, uh, 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 that they have got a divorce problem, for example. So the kids that they may have got like um, uh, the youth in itself, that they may have got a problem with the housing issues. And then the transitional, uh, transitional housing also provide an, a way, a new way to manage this kind of thing as well. So to a certain extent, so uh, for the transitional housing, they do not only solve the housing problem, but they also solve the social so, or society issues, uh, like what we say. So for about the youth, for example. So under these circumstances, I will say that the long-term society impact is not just about solving the housing shortage problem, but it is more than solving the, uh, like for example, the wider society uh, problem as well. 
So uh, this is this may be the impact outside what uh, originally where we always say about like Hong Kong, we do not have sufficient land, we do not have sufficient housing. Yeah, well, I, I, I think, you know, we, we should uh, research more into social housing or transitional housing uh, simply because uh, it is not just about uh, hardware, it's not, not about just the space, but it's also about the software, the community building skills uh, that come with it. And, and on this question, I know that the government has been uh, earmarking uh, different small pieces of land to build uh, transitional housing. So two-story bungalow type, like with containers, um, we we saw um, a few developments in Cham Shui Po in particular, and NGOs such as the Tonghua Group of Hospitals or SOCO have been uh, asked to be the managers, and they will select um, those tenants living in subdivided uh, flats in squatty and uh, you know squatted conditions uh, to go there. But still, you know, when when I see the piece of land, I will ask the question. If it is available for social housing and transitional housing, how come we can't really build proper public housing on that piece of land you know, rather than use it for transitional purposes? Well, as said that there are not all the pieces of land that is uh, suitable for building housing. So in Hong Kong, you, a lot of people may ask a question, why in Singapore there are so many, uh, so many good housing that is supplied but not in Hong Kong? Because in Hong Kong's case, that in case of a land structure, not all the land are suitable for building uh, deep foundation where we have got like 30, 40 or 60 story high because the piling is needed. So under these circumstances, uh, there may be some of the land in itself where it is not suitable for building the uh, like towers of the skyscrapers for which the public housing that we expect. Then uh, this, piece, this piece of land that it can be like suitable for building transitional housing in itself. And more importantly, for the case of transitional housing, we do not expect that to be like skyscrapers because for building skyscrapers, there are a lot more things that have to be uh, considered, not just about the foundation, but there may be a kind of things like, for example, that we have to pass through the time planning uh, board's requirements about, uh, for example, the wind direction, uh, the wind flow. And then so that means that there are a lot more things to consider. So. Uh, even though there are a lot of people to say that, well, why that we just uh, build a public housing? Because we need to have much more time, uh, taking much more time for that. So in between the time, by the time that we uh, we have got the, uh, we build uh, those towers of blocks of skyscrapers for the public housing, then we can actually use this good time to uh, to uh, uh, provide some of the housing in the short one to solve the short one problem instead. So um, would you judge the transitional housing program so far to have been a success? Well, uh, uh, you mean uh, Hong Kong or you mean the, no, uh, he, the outside well, world? Well, here in Hong Kong, mostly. Oh, here in Hong Kong. Well, actually, I think uh, the latest uh, suggestion about, like, for example, the new world development, it is also a, a good, uh, a, also a good uh, suggestion that it is announced yesterday where the type of the housing that they mentioned about uh, the rather short, uh, rather rather cheap price, which is at about $135,000 uh, for down payment, uh, which is a, a kind of a housing that is like, uh, quite, uh, quite uh, affordable. But and that is almost I, like a, uh, Dr. Lee, that's almost like a home ownership scheme, uh, whereas uh, the other transitional housing we have talked about uh, is on a rental purpose, right? The new uh, world that one model. is for, for the sale purpose yesterday by the time they announced it. So that one, I think uh, if we follow more or less similar model, it can actually solve a lot of 
prop, uh, a lot of the problem for which the the the, uh, the the Hong Kong people that they do not have uh, sufficient down payment, and then they can also uh, they can also serve as uh, they can solve the problem of the not sufficient uh, uh, housing problem. And then if we look at like for example transitional housing in Port Oikon, Huawei uh, Village, for example. They also provide a kind of like transitional housing, and that one is, is actually provided by Port Oil. And then uh, that one, uh, if you try to see it, and then that is like sort of like very well equipped, and then uh, that one is, is uh, actually built together with Port Oil Hospital and also Henderson Land Development. So it means that for the Port Oil Hospital, they can provide sort of like health support, and then the Henderson Land can provide the housing uh, development uh, uh, related issues. Mm. So that it means that this sort of the uh, this sort of the transitional housing, it does not only solve the housing problem, but it also solves the problem like for example, potentially speaking, elderly problem where they do where where say for instance they cannot live together with those like younger people. Mm. And then uh, like for example, those of the mental health problem, they cannot live with those like um, uh, family members. For example, <laughs> for example, we have heard a lot of people. Uh, recently, we say that we have got like a few cases where there are some people that have got me- possibly mental health problem, and that there are a lot of cockroaches in the housing, for example. And these are people actually they cannot. I, I don't think they can live in the public housing itself. Uh, they may need to. Right. Have, and, like, and recently, we uh, yeah, Doctor Lee. Recently, we yeah. also see hotels joining this space uh, by offering. Yeah. <laughs> rooms for rental, but I think this is because the tourists are not coming yet because of uh, the pandemic situation. Do you think this will be very, very short-lived? Well, actually, this is also one way. The main reason is that because of the pandemic, the lower-end house hotel, actually, they may suffer a lot from the very poor uh, businesses. And then uh, you may have heard some people even that they rent for their hotel units for, uh, for a long term. They do not consider them themselves as like just uh, uh, rent it for a short term, like for some two weeks, but they consider it as like, for example, renting for the whole, uh, for the long run. So actually for the hotel in itself, that uh, uh, that it can be a way to solve the problem at, uh, in itself as well, in particular for those are low end, low end one, where we can actually renovate a bit and then the people can move in. Mm. So because of the service that is provided, so it means that the service issue is not an issue at all. So uh, they can be sort of like, just like the surface apartment, that type, uh, but then uh, uh, that is provided by the original hostel providers. So that can be an alternative uh, solution to okay. that as well. Okay, so great. why not we just uh, idle it? Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like a win-win. Okay, uh, thank you very much for joining us, uh, Dr. Rita Lee there, Director of Sustainable uh, Real Estate uh, Research Centre, Associate Professor at the Department of Economics and Finance at Hong Kong Xu Yan University. Um, thank you to uh, all of our listeners, who, and uh, thank you to everybody who wrote in. Thanks very much to you, Ada. Thank you, Jim. And a quick look at the weather before we go to the new summary and morning brew. It will be fine today with a top temperature of around uh, 22 degrees. Uh, moderate northerly winds becoming fresh easterlies later. The outlook remaining fine and dry this week with relatively large temperature differences between day and night. Still cool in the morning on Wednesday and Thursday. Currently, it's 20 degrees, humidity 59%. The 2021 Legislative Council general election will be held on December 19th. 
If electors who use a wheelchair or have mobility difficulty find the polling station shown on the map attached to the poll card difficult to access, they can apply for reallocation to another polling station by calling 2891-1001 by December 14th. Also, on request, the Registration and Electoral Office will try to arrange for the rehab bus service to take them to and from polling stations. The News Summary with Andrew Shirovsky. China specialist Willie Lam has described comments by a senior Beijing official as unprecedented. A day after the director of Beijing's Hong Kong and Macau Affairs Office, Xiao Baolong, urged Hong Kong people to cast their sacred ballots in the Legislative Council polls on December 19th. New York City's mayor, Bill de Blasio, has issued a vaccine mandate for private sector workers, calling it a preemptive strike designed to stem rising cases of COVID-19. And Myanmar's military rulers are facing international condemnation after the deposed civilian leader Aung San Suu Kyi was given a four-year prison sentence, which was later reduced to two. I'll have more on these stories at 10 o'clock. Stand by for the brew. A uh, sociology prof from the University of Set and Costume Designer, great interpreter of Beethoven. And well, oh, so shy, quiet, and retiring Gilgit Council co founder of Rockefeller Records. Hello. This is a really for adults, it's not really for kids. Yeah, well, it's fun, you know. Decipher of what's happening behind the lift. Good morning. Inter- interviews and also observations. Absolutely no way. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Hi, good morning. Welcome to Tuesday. Here on The Morning Brew, I'm Phil Whelan. It's almost Aussie Day. Jared Watt's going to be with us a little bit earlier today, after 10, for some extra musical goodness, because he wants to start rolling out some new Aussie Christmas tracks for you. Paul Kelly's new album, apparently that's the thing. 11.10, a completely recharged Dr. Merrin Pierce will be with us live from Pakitani in New Zealand. And we're going to talk about recycling batteries and stuff. After 12, we'll be... Heading to Melbourne for our weekly chat with biz futurist Morris Misolowski, who wants to tell you about a black box that's being built to record. The end of the world. That's what he says. All on today's Morning Brew, so stick around if you can. If you want to get in touch for anything at all, find us on Facebook or morningbrew at rthk.hk. 